Please be seated. Well, we continue our study of the Shorter Catechism, and we're on the Ninth Commandment. We're, we've had several sermons on it. This will be the third one in our series. So let's confess the questions that are related to the Ninth Commandment. Question 76, which is the Ninth Commandment? The Ninth Commandment is, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. I mentioned to you last week that when the Lord tells us that we are not to bear false witness, he speaks against two related sins as well. So the commandment, as with all the commandments, it encompasses more than just the letter of the law. The sin of unjustly or maliciously harming our neighbor's name or his reputation, which is what we looked at last week, is the first thing that is forbidden in that command. So bearing false witness in court is one thing, but doing it in any way, gossiping about people, hurting their name, all things associated with that are included. And then the sin of lying is the second thing. In any form, we should not lie. That's what we're looking at this week. So you can see how the catechism includes both of these sins when it explains what is required and what is forbidden in the ninth commandment. And It speaks particularly of these things that I just mentioned, these two things. So let's confess these questions together as well, the answers to these questions. Question 77, what is required in the ninth commandment? The ninth commandment requireth the maintaining and promoting of truth between man and man and of our own and our neighbor's good name, especially in witness bearing. Question 78, What is forbidden in the ninth commandment? The ninth commandment forbiddeth whatsoever is prejudicial to truth or injurious to our own or our neighbor's good name. So again, today we will focus in particular on lying, or as the catechism says, whatsoever is prejudicial to truth. Our scripture reading is Ephesians 4, 17 through 25. We will be especially focusing on the last verse today of that reading. So please give me your careful attention because this is the word of God. Ephesians 4, verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. In verse 21, notice how it speaks about hearing Christ. And of course, like us, the Ephesians had never met Christ in person. They were Gentiles who lived in Ephesus. They would have 
likely none of them would have ever even seen him before when he was in the world. So what is Paul talking about here when he talks about hearing Christ? Where he's talking about hearing with faith, the hearing of faith. The Lord Jesus speaks to us and he opens our heart to receive the gospel. That's what Jesus talked about in John 10 when he talked about if anyone will hear my voice and come to me. So when, the, when that happens, we are said, according to the scriptures and God's covenant, to be taught of God, to be taught by God. You can see how verse 21 speaks of that idea as well. And it says, you have been taught by him. So you've, if you've heard Christ, then you have been taught by him. If you believe, it means that you're taught of God, you're taught of Christ. It says you have been taught by him, by Jesus, as the truth is in Jesus. So consider what this is saying about you if you are a Christian. It is saying that you have heard Jesus, even though you've never seen him, and you have heard the word of the gospel so that you have believed it, and that it is truth. You have come to know the truth that you avoided before you came to know him. Once you are taught of him, you admit the truth about your sin. You stop denying it and you stop minimizing it. Well, we may minimize it to some extent, but not as we once did. Jesus taught that your sin will bring you into eternal punishment and you have accepted that if you're a Christian. And you see that, that, you see that it is true. You accept that when he teaches it to you by his spirit. You've been taught of God. You are able to admit the truth because he also, that truth, because he also teaches you at the same time that he has come to save his people from their sins. He died on the cross and he promises that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So you don't have to deny the truth about your sin because you know the truth about him as savior. So you learn the truth about your sin from him, but you also learn and believe the truth about your salvation from him. <clears throat> you come to him for mercy then, looking to him for forgiveness of sin according to his promise. And from that point on, you have the truth in a very defining fundamental way, a way that defines you. You accept the truth, you believe the truth, you are, as Jesus put it when he spoke to Pilate, of the truth. You're people who are of the truth. And because you now are of the truth, lying in any form is inappropriate for you. God is truth. Before you came to Jesus, you did not want to go near the truth. Your heart said, don't go there when the truth was presented to you. You didn't want to be around the truth. You wanted to have a different narrative, as we talked about last week. You wanted to have a different narrative than the truth because you wanted a different God than God. So you made up new narratives according to your own taste. Or rather, you bought into narratives very often from this fallen world. You may remember in the introductory sermon, I explained that the new narrative that we embraced when we fell 
That is, when our first parents who represented us fell and we all fell with them and in them, that that new narrative was the lie that it would be better if we lived as we pleased instead of living in obedience to God. That was the initial rebellion. And we began to live a lie that I'm better to do what I want than what God wants, to put it very simply. But when we come to Jesus, you see, you're restored to the truth again and the false narrative has to go. That means then that we love the truth now. The truth is what set us free from a life of falsehood and denial and a life cut off from God. It set us free in Jesus Christ. And that means that we embrace the truth now instead of making up our own narrative of things. We don't want a false story. We want the truth. We also represent the truth as Christians. We should be people whose word is gold, a people that others know will never lie to them. It should be one of the things that we're known by as God's people, a hallmark of us as Christians. Truth should characterize our Christian fellowship in particular. Therefore, Ephesians 4.25 says, Putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Today I want to look at three categories of lies. You will notice that our text says to put away lying, period. All lying. And so it will help us to consider different kinds of lies that we need to put away. We're going to begin with lies that everyone would agree should be put away. I'm going to call malicious lies. Lies that, are, that hurt other people. Then we will look at lies that mean no harm. What I'm going to call harmless lies, even though they're not really harmless. And lastly, we'll look at lies that are aimed at doing good which I will call as they are so-called righteous lies. I remind you from the outset that Ephesians 4.25 does not tell us to put away lying as long as it doesn't hurt anyone, but it tells us plainly to put away lying. So I hope to convince you that no lie is acceptable for you as a Christian. We have been taught the truth by Jesus and the truth has set us free. We no longer We're no longer to be liars, but people of the truth. So let's begin with the first category then. Put away all malicious lies. Everyone knows the lies that hurt other people are wrong. Things like bearing false witness itself. Think about wicked Queen Jezebel when Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard. What did she do? In 1 Kings 21, she wrote to the elders in Naboth's city, Uh, Naboth had the vineyard that Ahab, her husband, wanted. So she wrote to the elders these words. Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honor among the people and seat two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him, saying, You have blasphemed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him that he may die. That's clearly a malicious lie. She made that up so that he would be punished. But, it, but is it not also a malicious lie when you lie to someone 
who is purchasing something from you. We've seen how the Bible condemns those who use false scales so that they lie about what they're selling you. That is malicious because it's an attack that hurts your neighbor. It's an attack on your neighbor. Hosea 12, 7 has a label and a description for those who do that. It says, a cunning Canaanite. Deceitful scales are in his hand. He loves to oppress. False prophets also fall under this category. Satan the father of li- is the father of lies, and he is the one who came to us with lies about God in the first place, and false prophets propagate those lies. They hate the truth, so they spread error about God and about religion, and people follow them because they hate the truth too. And there are some false leaders, they know that what they're saying is false, but they do it in order to draw people away after them. It's a terrible thing to do. It's a malicious lie. You would, you would ruin someone's soul with false teachings so that you can get something from them that you want. Because it's so clear that these things are wrong, then we might at first suppose that, of course, we would never do such things. But what about, what about bearing false witness? I mean, what if there's someone, we talked about this last week, what if there's someone that rubs you the wrong way and you hear something bad about them that they have done? Do you ever spread it around, even without checking the facts? And how many times have you assumed evil motives of people that you maybe don't get along with? It's a funny thing because there can be somebody that you got along with great and you thought everything they did was great, and, and then you get into a quarrel with them, and, and now everything they do is, what did you do that for? What was that? And every, your, whole, your whole approach changes. And with cheating, I mean, have you ever misrepresented something you were selling? Exaggerated? Ever exaggerated on a timesheet at work? Then you're showing hatred to the buyer or to your employer. It's not innocent. It's a malicious lie. It hurts someone else to advantage yourself. Now, this one you would surely want to deny, but what about the false prophet issue? Have there ever been truths in God's word that you didn't like? What did you do when you didn't like them? You deny them for a while. Even though it's pretty clear, you hang on to the error and you spread and defend the error because you don't want to face the truth. Maybe you learned about God's call to keep the Lord's day holy, but you don't want to you don't want to believe that. You don't want to have to, you don't want to, have to keep that day holy, a whole day. So you, you hang on to what you used to believe for a while. And during that time, you defend your error, you argue it, even though you're really no better. It's a malicious lie. You're leading people into error by holding on to that and teaching. Jeroboam did not like to worship at Jerusalem because it, he thought, oh, the people might return to um, the, the king in Judah and, and to Rehoboam and, and forsake me. And so he's, he didn't like that worship, so he came up with a different kind of worship. And he led, he's the one that is said to have caused all Israel to sin. Understand that even when you're actually con- convinced of some error, say you deny infant baptism, for example, and you're convinced that you're right in denying it. You think, yeah, you should never, we should never baptize babies. And you really do believe that. It's still sinful for you to spread your error, even though you do it in ignorance. And it hurts other people 
and it leads other people astray. Now, we all have errors in what we believe. We don't know them sometimes. And we spread lies when we speak about it. Now, does that mean you should never say anything? No, because that would be sinful. You don't edify people if you don't speak to them and talk to them about what they ought to believe. It means, though, that we should be careful about what we believe and that we should be as honest as we possibly can be about that and pray that God would show us the truth and guide us in the truth because we don't want to be propagators of, of error and lies. So it, it means that we're to be careful to understand the truth and to speak the truth but that we also need to trust God to forgive us for whatever errors we may have. And this is what I was talking about before. I mentioned this in the prayer, that as we look at this stuff, we're going to see there's sin in our lives. I mean, are we surprised? There's sin that we don't even know about, and there's sin that we do know about. And that's why we always need forgiveness from Christ and why we're so glad that we have a Savior that cleanses us from all of our sin when we walk in the light. It's one of the areas in which we stand in constant need of his forgiveness is is right here. So that's malicious lies. Obviously, such lies that hurt other people, harm other people are wrong. But our next category is not as obviously wrong. Harmless lies, that is lies that, that, you know, mean no harm. we're, We're just trying to get out of something. We're not trying to hurt anyone. We're not trying to cheat anyone or anything like that. Lies you tell, for example, not against another person, but just to get out of something. In Luke 14, Jesus tells the parable about the wedding feast. You know that parable probably where people are invited to the wedding feast and they start making excuses, all kinds of excuses why they can't come. And the excuses are not really legitimate, you know, they, something they could have done another time. Jesus was saying that the kingdom of heaven is like that. People make excuses to avoid coming to him as Savior. He shows that God is very angry when we do that. Surely you've done that to get out of Christian duties before. Have you? Have you ever made excuses to get out of going to church or reading your Bible or avoiding family worship? Make excuses to justify not doing these things? We've all done it. You all know about the young boy who would tell his mom that he doesn't feel well in the morning and he doesn't go to school. And then when it gets to be around lunchtime, he starts feeling a lot better. (laughs) He wants to go and play. And he wasn't really very bad off all along, but it was convenient, a convenient way to get out of school. It's very childish, but what about you as an adult? Have you ever taken advantage of a a slight headache to get out of helping someone that you didn't really want to bother to help? Oh, I've got a bit of a headache. And you really don't have much of a headache at all. You just, you were glad to have that. I think the most deceptive form of lying to get out of work is when we busy ourselves with one thing to avoid something that we really don't want to do. To give ourselves an excuse to avoid that thing that we don't want to do. Maybe you've got a hard phone call to make. You need to talk to someone about something and you really don't want to do it. So, oh, I've got all this work I've got to do. And you get all busy and you're all absorbed and you're grinding away and you just don't have time, you know, to do that other thing that, that you needed to do. It's certainly a temptation for those who manage their own schedules 
It's a temptation that we pastors face a lot of times. It's a temptation that housewives often face that manage their own schedule. Because, you know, it's very easy to have something that you really should do, but you're, you're so busy with all these other things that, yeah, they're, they're good things, but you're avoiding something. It's, it's a way of lying to get out of what really needs to be done. A second kind of so-called harmless lie is a lie that we tell to get out of trouble. God had to rebuke Abraham's wife, Sarah, for that one. In Genesis 18, we're told how Sarah laughed when God told Abraham that she would have a son in her old age when she was past the age to bear children. She was like, ha, how, how, could, I have, how could I have children now? In, in Genesis 18, 13, it says, And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? She was in the tent adjacent to them, and they could hear each other. said, Why did Sarah laugh? Saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. He didn't let her get away with it because, you know, she wasn't trying to hurt anyone, right? She was just trying to get out of trouble. The Lord deals gently with her, but he doesn't let her get away with it, does he? This may seem very childish as well, and it is, but do you not do that too? Don't you find it hard to admit when you've done something wrong? It's one of the hardest things for us. You try to justify, what, well, it was, I did this because of this, and somebody did that, and it was this was going on. You explain it. You try to minimize it. Remember when Saul was commanded to kill the Amalekites and to destroy all that they owned, and he did not do it? And when Samuel came and he said, what's this bleeding of sheep that I hear? And why is the, the king of the Amalekites, Agag, why is he standing here in front of us? And you remember what Saul said? He said, but, 1 Samuel 15, 20, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. Well, yeah, sort of. And brought back Agag, king of Amalek, I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Well, the king is still standing there. But the people took the plunder. Oh, it was them. Oh, the people took the plunder. The sheep and the oxen, the best of the things, which should have been given, utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. You know what the result of that was? That was when the kingdom was taken away from Saul. When God pronounced that he would no longer be king and that David would be king instead. It would have been a lot better if the dude had just said, hey, I sinned, if he had just repented at that point. Why go into all this stuff to try to say, oh, no, and, and, and deny it? It's a sin that keeps people out of God's kingdom. If you refuse to admit that you're a sinner, how can you ever come to Christ for forgiveness? We should detest this tendency to deny the truth about our guilt. You know what you do when you do this? You drag out wrongs that you have done for a really, really long time. Why would you want to drag out a wrong? You, you, you harm relationships that you have with other people because instead of just going to them saying, hey, I shouldn't have done that. You know, I sinned again. Will you forgive me? You're, you're going, well, I didn't. I, I didn't. And, and you're, you're, you're dragging it out. You, you could deal with it. But instead, you want to hold on to some kind of righteousness that you have. Why add to the wrong you did 
to them by dragging it out when you might confess it and put an end to it through Christ? Why add further harm to your relationships? Perhaps you make up excuses as to why you didn't get your work done so that you won't get into trouble. The excuses are just lies, but they get you out of trouble if you are believed. And that's wrong to start with, isn't it? But even worse, it's addictive. If you have that in your toolbox, if I make excuses, I can get out of trouble for not doing my work, then you're going to pull that tool out quite a lot. And you're going to use it again and again to get out of trouble. Dr. J. Adams tells about a very elaborate scheme of a university student he met in a mental Ill institution in Illinois. The poor boy was diagnosed by the psychiatrist as a catatonic schizophrenic. That's quite a label, isn't it? And he was there in the mental institution. He wasn't talking to anyone. He didn't talk except just maybe minimally, a little, just a tiny bit. And he shuffled about as though he was in a stupor. Just, and he was a university student. Jay and those that he was with assured this guy, Steve, that, that they knew that he understood what was going on, even though he acted like he didn't, and that he was not going to fool them. They returned the next week, and after about an hour, he began to break down, and his, he began to give hesitant replies, indicating that he knew what was going on, that he wasn't out of touch. The third week, he confessed everything. He had been spending all his time, Jay said, as a prop man for a play instead of doing his studies. He was about to receive failure notices from a lot of his midterms, and he was going to, to fail. He did not like the narrative. He wanted to get out of it. So instead of facing his parents and his friends as a failure, and instead of confessing the sin that he had done, he began acting in a bizarre manner, and he found that this threw everybody off track. They thought that he was out of touch with reality. He got a diagnosis from the psychiatrist saying that he was out of touch with reality. He had found a great way to get out of trouble, but it was all a big deception. Such behavior is actually a lot more common than what we think it is. Many times people will employ things like that to get themselves out of situations to avoid responsibility and to excuse themselves. See that you don't do that. And then there are the lies we tell to avoid offending people. You know, when you don't want to talk to someone and you don't, you don't want to say, I don't want to talk to you or I can't talk to you or whatever it is. So you tell your children, tell them I'm not home when you are home. You do this because you don't want the person to be offended that you don't want to talk to them. But why lie? Why not just tell them that, can I call you another time? What a wicked thing it is for you to tell your children to lie. I hope you don't ever do that. You should never do that. Lying is never the right approach because we're to speak truth to each other. And of course, there are the lies that you tell the friend that has the new dress. You know, uh, you don't like it. <laughs> she says, what do you think of it? <laughs> and so you lie and tell her that, oh, it's, it's beautiful. You should never lie. You could try things like, you know, does, does your husband like it? <laughs> or even, uh, oh, that's a nice color. But if she keeps pressing you, which is rude on her part, by the way, you can still be kind and say something like, 
well, you know that I'm not a very trendy person or you know that I'm really a trendy person and so I like things this way. It's not really my taste or something like that. You, you don't have to, but you should not lie. Your friend asks you something and wants to know and you should speak the truth. An even worse kind of lie to avoid get, giving offense is lying about what you believe. You know, somebody, maybe there's a group of people and you're the odd one out, you know, the Christian that's in a, in a cafeteria or something with the people at work or something. They say, well, you, surely you don't believe that unless somebody believes like you do that they're going to go to hell, do you? Oh, 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 oh no, I don't, I don't exactly believe that. Well, wait, wait, what, what did you say? Uh, it can be so easy to say that, can it? It's easy to do that, but... It's to tell a lie. You're spreading lies about God. You can say it in a nice way, in a sense. You can say, you know, yes, I, I, I believe God's word. And, you know, we're all such sinners that there is absolutely no way that we can be restored to God except through God's son, Jesus, that died on the cross. He's the only one that could pay for our sins. You can lay it out, but you, you shouldn't say, oh, no, no, no. Or, or, or well, no, not, not exactly. Jesus says if we deny him, he also will deny us. Many people have died defending the truth. So can you not take a little rejection from people that are going to do this to you? Rejection for his sake? So those are lies that may, that may seem harmless to us and therefore excusable. But they are not excusable according to God's word. The Lord hates lying. He's a God of truth. And we're to be a people of truth. But now we come to those lies that even seem like a good thing. Okay, what we what is so-called righteous lies aimed at doing good. I'm going to lie for the greater good. Now this is a this is this is something that is good men differ on. So we we need to look at this carefully and I would say, even as I teach on this, that it's not what I'm saying here is not an article within our confession, except in as much as it says, as we just read in this catechism, for example, that we shouldn't lie. But there are those who differ on this from me. But I believe that what I'm bringing to you here is the word of God and can def- I can defend it from Scripture. So let's I want you to consider these things because, again, this is something that is controversial even among us as solid reform people. So let's start out, first of all. Suppose you want to encourage someone, and everybody, hopefully everybody would agree about this. They should. But you want to encourage someone, so you lie about their performance. That's common, isn't it? Very common in our day. We want people to feel good, want them to like us or whatever, so we tell them that they did a great job when they really didn't do a good job at all. We said, but, but I'm doing it for the greater good. I want them to feel encouraged and to keep on trying, to keep on going. This is done in schools so that children are given good marks that they don't deserve. I was a recipient of marks that I didn't deserve when I was in grade seven. And I, was, I, I didn't like doing schoolwork at all when I was in grade seven. And uh, I remember in one of my classes that I would have a project, projects that were given to me, and I would not even do it at all. And everybody would be handing in their project, and the teacher would look for mine, and I would say, 
<laughs> I didn't do it. I didn't even have any, anything to give it all. And then when we'd have a test, I hadn't read the book or anything, paid attention in class, and I would just try to answer the multiple choice or something and guess at it and just kind of, and I, I failed. I made failing grades. And when, when the report cards were coming out, I thought, oh, no, I'm, there's no way I'm going to pass. I'm going to fail every, you know, I'm going to fail this class and totally. I got a C. I said, oh, average. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is good. <laughs> you know, I can keep on, uh, I can do this. <laughs> I was quite content to keep on slacking off. Now, my teacher in those days, it was a little different at school, she would, um, she would make me pull up my pants leg and get her, her, her rod out and, and give me a good, you know, make a, make a good bruise there on the side of my leg for not handing in my paper, but that was okay. <laughs> I mean, I get that on the ball field, you know, so it wasn't really a big deal, and I was, I was happy to go on. Fortunately, um, I realized that they were starting to put me in kind of these slow classes and stuff, and that if I was going to go to university, then I'd better, I'd better do a little bit more work than that. And so, you know, I found some ways, and like that class, I would make a map and drill holes in the map with my drill and put a light underneath and then show where different products were. <laughs> they liked that a lot, so it was, um, I did okay with my projects after I started doing them, but anyway, that, that was the way it was. Um, but you see, it wasn't doing me any good to give me a C just so I could be passed through the system and go on. But it was done, in a, I'm sure, with good intent. Oh, we don't want to hold people back. We don't want to fail anyone. Presbyteries can cause great problems when they don't deal honestly with ministerial students who are candidates, lest they discourage them. We don't want to discourage them. A colleague of mine tells about how after preaching one of his first sermons, he was told how bad it was. Like one of the presbyters said, you know, that was really bad. Like you didn't do, you didn't study properly. Your exegesis was bad. Your delivery was bad. Like you've got a lot of work to do. And this guy, he knew, he'd, he'd actually been a preacher before that in another denomination. And he was now going through, you know, master's kind of program to become a minister in the ARP. And uh, he was sort of, you know, <laughs> He was quite defeated. He felt terrible. But he said it was the best thing that ever happened to him because he realized it was true. And then he went back and he started working. And he started working hard. And then the next time he preached, he was able to say, that was a lot better. You know, there's still work to be done. It was, he said it was the best thing that ever happened. He doesn't think he would probably be in the ministry if that man had not spoken plainly to him. Proverbs 26, 28, a flattering mouth works ruin. So, yeah, righteous lie? Yeah, tell me another one. Another sort of righteous lie is one you tell to get something good, even something good from God. The classic example is Jacob in the Old Testament. Do you remember how he and his mother, what did they want? Were they lying to get something that was evil and bad? No, they were lying to get the blessing that had been promised to Jacob, even though he was not the oldest, he was uh, the second born, but God had said that Jacob would receive the blessing being the one that would eventually bring forth Messiah, you know. 
It was very much something that they should have desired. It was good to want the blessing that God had promised to Jacob. They wanted it because God promised it. But when it looked like Jacob's father Isaac was going to give the blessing to Jacob's brother Esau, Jacob and his mother resorted to deception. Why? To do a good thing. So that Jacob, who was supposed to get the blessing, could get the blessing. They dressed Jacob up like Esau, and Jacob uh, flat out lied to his father, telling him that he was Esau. God wanted him to have the blessing. God wanted Jacob to have the blessing. He had promised that he would. And he actually used his deception as the means by which he obtained the blessing. It was integral to the way in God's overall providence that he brought the blessing to Jacob. It was through Jacob's lie. But that does not justify his lie. It doesn't make a lie right because God was merciful and brought a good outcome. God is going to bring what he promised to bring no matter what we do, but it doesn't make everything that we do along the way right. It was wrong to go about it that way, and it led to years of trouble in Jacob's life as he had to run away from Esau and all the rest. He had faith, but get this, important principle here, we're going to see some more of it. He had faith, but his faith was defective. The faith was good because he wanted the promise of God, but it was defective because he lied in order to go about getting it. He didn't trust God enough to work out whatever needed to be worked out without him lying, without resorting to lying. Remember this principle. Just because God uses our lying to accomplish his purpose does not make lying right. God is gracious and blesses us despite our lie, but the lie was still sinful. Now, maybe you want people to come to Christ. Is that a good thing? Absolutely a good thing to want people to come to Christ. You see how important it is. But people are not coming. As you think about it, maybe they're kind of offended by some of the things in the gospel. Maybe you sense that they're not coming because they're offended with what the Bible says about homosexuality, for example. So you reason, well, the most important thing is that they come to Christ. So we can set this aside so as not to offend them and tell them about how Jesus forgives sins and how and that he embraces everybody, that he loves everyone and, you know, loves you the way you are, all this kind of stuff, because it's more important. I don't want to turn people off from the gospel, right? Right? So maybe, or maybe you try to entice them by telling them that, hey, if you come to Jesus, he'll work out everything for you, all your problems and stuff. You know, you'll, you'll, ha- you'll get to, all, everything will be wonderful. When Jesus says, if you follow me, you're going to have tribulation in the world. That people will hate you and call you evil. You're lying, but you're doing it for a good cause, right? So that they'll want to come to Christ. Maybe I can get them to Christ and then they'll find out. You know, what, no, you don't get them to Christ if you don't give the right gospel. Maybe you do. Maybe it worked. Maybe someone really is converted. Does that justify it? No. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul was around people who were using lies to draw people to Christ's kingdom. 
And he says this, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. So don't lose heart if people aren't coming. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. It is not for us to change the message to suit people. It is for us to speak the truth and leave it to God to save whomever he wishes to save. But now we come to the most controversial of righteous lies. And what I mean by controversial is what I expressed when I just began. This is a main point that the otherwise solid Christian teachers argue that it is okay to do this. Okay, there's a lot of solid Christian teachers who say it's okay to do this kind of lie right here. To tell lies to protect innocent people. Especially to tell lies to save lives. Let's look at some examples. First, there is the example of Abraham in Genesis 12 when he told lies to protect himself. Abraham had gotten off track a little bit. God had sent him to live in Canaan, told him that that was where he wanted him to dwell. And there was a famine in Canaan. And Abraham decided that he would go down to Egypt for a little while to get away from the famine. He didn't consult the Lord about that as far as we can tell. He just went. Bad idea. Because God told him to go to Canaan. And you remember he was obedient, went to Canaan. But then, oh, it's bad here. I'm going to go down to Egypt. Okay, so he's a little off track. When he gets to Egypt... He becomes fearful. His wife, Sarah, or Sarai, is a beautiful woman. And he's afraid that Pharaoh will want her so much that he might kill Abraham to to get his wife. So he tells Sarah to lie and say, you are my sister. She was his half-sister, so it wasn't even a total lie. But because she was his wife, then really that was the true relation that he had to her that he needed to, to bring forth. And sure enough, Pharaoh is attracted to Sarah. So Pharaoh starts giving Abraham all these really generous gifts and stuff. And he brings Sarah into his home. But then in a wonderful way that is aimed at teaching Abraham to trust God, God exposes Abraham's lie to Pharaoh. He plagues Pharaoh's household and he shows Pharaoh that it is because he's brought another man's wife into his house. Now, it appears that he hadn't had relations with her at this point. He brought her into the house, though. Now, now Pharaoh has more reason than ever to be angry with Abraham. And he probably would have wanted to kill him for that if he was going to kill him for something. Except that Pharaoh is not going to do that because he had just been visited by God and was afraid to mess with this man. So, but Abraham is shown that his safety was not in his lie. His lie put him in a place of greater danger. His safety was in the Lord. It was the Lord who was protecting him. And he had that lesson brought to him in a very vivid way. Abraham, your lie is worthless. Like, this is what will protect you. It's very easy to justify lies when we think we're in danger. Peter resorted to lies when he was um, at Jesus' trial. He was asked if he was one of Jesus' disciples. You're not one of his, didn't I see you with him? And he said, oh, I don't know him. It's clearly sinful on his part, and he repents later with bitter tears. 
We should not resort to lies to protect ourselves. We are to be a people of the truth. We are entrusted with the truth, and people should know that when a Christian speaks, that they can be sure of what that Christian says. Instead of making up a story that makes us feel safe, it's better to speak the truth and leave it to God to take care of you. But this does not mean that you may not conceal things at times. You can conceal things. It can be very appropriate. For example, if someone is trying to attack a woman and she runs away from her attacker and the attacker asks you where she went, it would be wrong for you to tell him. Say, oh, uh, she has a friend that lives over there around on the third block and she probably went over to her house. It's around there. You'll see the garage doors usually open over there. You can go, you know, right, right over there. No, you, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't lie. We're not to lie, but our word as believers should be goal, but people, people should know that, that we're not deceiving, but you can conceal the truth. You don't have to say. You don't have to tell where she went. Biblical warrant can be found for concealing truth in 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 5, where God tells Samuel to go to Bethlehem and anoint David as king. And Samuel objects that if he did that openly, he said, Saul will try to kill me. The Lord instructs him, therefore, to make a sacrifice when he goes to Bethlehem. And if he's asked why he's going to Bethlehem by Saul or some of his men, to tell him that he's going to offer sacrifice. Because he was. He doesn't have to tell people that he was going to anoint David because that was not their business. You don't have to say everything. Samuel does not lie. He was going to Bethlehem to offer sacrifices at a feast. He did not have to tell them what he was also doing that was to be done in secret. Of course, it is wrong to conceal truth that someone else has a right to know. For example, it would be wrong for you to to conceal work that you have done in order to avoid paying taxes that you justly ought to pay. The government has a right to know. Saul did not have a right to know that God was calling David to be king. So although it would have been wrong for Samuel to lie, it was not wrong for him to conceal the truth. In a similar way, if you're visiting a prisoner and there's a warden there that you know hates the Bible and that's opposed to those things, you don't have to tell him that you're coming to share God's word. You can say, I'm coming to visit Bill here at the prison. And the warden doesn't have to know what your visit is about. You don't have to tell him. We have to be very careful here because it will be easy for us to claim that someone doesn't have a right to know, though, when in fact they do have a right to know. But the main point here is that it is never right to lie. And God leads Samuel so that he carefully avoids lying, but also does not divulge what he's doing. What about telling lies to protect life, though, the way Rahab did? This is a classic illustration that's used to justify the righteous lie. Famous account used for that. You know the story, perhaps. uh, Rahab, the harlot, lived in Jericho. It was the first city that God sent Israel to destroy in the promised land when he sent them in to bring judgment upon Canaan. They were to destroy all the cities and all the people and and to go in, move in and inherit the land. Before Israel went in, they sent some men to spy out the city of Jericho and to report back to them. Rahab lodged these men and she believed 
that the Lord was indeed going to conquer Jericho. So she pled with these men to remember me and spare my life and my family when, when you come. And because she believed God, which was a good thing, she hid the spies from the officers in Jericho. And she clearly lied to the officers. In Joshua 2, 4 through 6, it says, Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. When the men went, uh, where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. And it says in parentheses, But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. God used her lie to protect the men. Yeah, like we talked about before. Rahab is commended in the Bible for her faith. And I think it's very important here to back up and look at the big picture. What happened here to Rahab was a wonderful thing. This woman came to believe. And that is, she came to a saving knowledge of the Lord at this time. But that does not justify everything that she did. You don't take the fact that she came to saving faith and say that everything she did, therefore, is a warrant for us to do likewise when the scripture clearly tells us that we should not lie. So she is commended, praised for her faith in Hebrews 11. But it should be noted that when Hebrews 11 speaks about her faith, it does not commend her for lying. That was really a great lie that Rahab told. No, Hebrews 11.31 says, By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. What Rahab did overall was right, but she should have done it if everything was perfect. Who is perfect? Should have done it without lying. Her lie is similar to the lie of Jacob. It was a defect in saving faith, faith that was otherwise saving faith. Her faith was a saving faith, but saving faith is not without sin. We ought to imitate her faith, but we ought not to imitate her lying. Rahab was a new believer. It's a wonderful thing. Her faith overshadows her lies. Her Lord was delighted with what she did overall. In such times of pressure, it can be very difficult for us. And the Lord doesn't deal harshly with us for our defects. If he did, who could be saved? Here we go again. Whoever made us think that we're perfect or that anybody's perfect? None of us are in this life. But we tread on very dangerous ground when we establish a precedent from this that it is right for us to lie in any case and in such cases. The Bible says that we're to put away lying and speak the truth. This is like what we see with stealing. The Bible says that if a man is hungry and he steals, then he's not going to be despised the way a man who has plenty and steals is going to be despised. It's much worse to, lie, I mean, to steal when you've got everything that you need than it is when you're hungry and you understand it, but it doesn't make it right ever to steal. 
And that's, that's what we're talking about here. The Bible says that you're to put away lying and to speak the truth. We learn about some of the ones like, uh, you know, Corrie ten Boone talks about this and how when she was hiding the Nazis and then, I mean, <laughs> hiding, the Nazis, hiding the Jews from the Nazis, that she would, um, you know, she would, she would lie, tell them she didn't have any, any there. She later regretted that she had lied as her faith grew stronger. And she told about one of her neighbors that also was hiding the Jews and had a trap door that was under the dining room table. There was a carpet on it and a trap door underneath. I think it was something like that. And that um, when the authorities would come and ask if she was hiding Jews and were suspect of, uh, suspecting her, she would say, they're under the table. <laughs> and they would go in and look under the table and they'd dig around, look in the closets and go all around the house and look around. And she never lied to them. And so if they had found him there, she was so I told you that they were under the table. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different kind of approach that we avoid telling lies. Once you accept it as a principle, I, I was saying it was a very dangerous thing to do that. Once you accept it as a principle that lying is okay in order to do good, then you'll put lying, as I mentioned before, in your toolbox. And when you have it in your toolbox, you're going to want to use it in times when you really, I don't think you should ever use it, but you're going to be tempted to use it in a lot of times that you would, if you thought ahead, you would never think would be right. It'll be very easy for you to take it out because you'll believe that you're lying for the greater good. Maybe you've cheated on your spouse and you justify lying because, well, I want to preserve my marriage. And if my spouse finds out, then it might end my marriage. So I'm going to keep it covered up. I'm going to lie about it for the sake of the children, for the sake of my marriage. I tell you that in my personal ministry, I have seen people who have come to embrace the righteous lie. And when things get tense and there's a lot of pressure, they take it out of the toolbox and they use that lie to do greater good. It's so easy to say, I'm doing it for the greater good. And maybe you are, but it's not a tool that should be in our toolbox. It doesn't justify our lies. So I would conclude this whole thing by emphasizing that lying is never appropriate for a believer. God himself is truth and there is no falsehood in him. Lies are contrary to God's very nature. Therefore, we should accept the command to put away lying from henceforth. As believers, we should all be able to fully trust one another. As it says in Ephesians 4.25, we are members of each other. It is a violation of Christian community to lie because we are a community of truth, a community that is built on the truth and that cherishes the truth. We cherish the truth because we cherish God who is truth. We cherish his son who is the truth and who has restored us to truth by his blood. Lies have no place among our community. As a community, we want people to know that we will not lie. Truth is what we are about. It's what sets us apart. And let me say that if you're harboring lies, then you need to repent. If you have told a lie and have not repented of it, then you're living a lie. And repentance from lying cannot be done in your heart. Because you lied to another person. 
And if you repent, it means that, yes, you repent in your heart before God, but you have to go to another, to the individual and confess that you lied to them and tell them the truth. Until you do, you can't walk with the Lord. You're regarding iniquity in your heart and the Lord will not hear you. A sin that breaks fellowship with God is a sin that you have never dealt with. So there are lies. If there are lies, your relationship with God is going to be hampered. Clear it up. Put away all lying. Then you will know the joy and fellowship of the Lord. Please stand and let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. And we pray, Lord, that we would cherish your word and that we would cherish the truth, that we would be a people of the truth, a people who love the truth, a people who preserve the truth, a people who want to live in and embrace the truth and who want to always speak the truth. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to have wisdom. We know that there are times when we should conceal, that we don't have to tell people everything. We don't have to tell them it's not lying to refuse to tell people things that they have no right to know. And we pray that you would help us, Lord, to to be able to have a clear understanding of these things. It is a difficult subject. And we pray, Lord, that we would walk before you with a clear conscience. We thank you that, as I have emphasized today, that, yeah, there's sin in our life. Of course there is. And there is forgiveness with you. And we thank you, Lord, that that you do have mercy on us and that you deal gently with us as a father toward his children. We see how you dealt gently with, with Abraham and with Jacob and with, with Rahab. And it wasn't like this was the biggest thing in Rahab's life. The biggest thing was that she believed and that she, uh, she trusted you and knew that, that what you had said was going to be what was done. And we thank you for that, Lord. There's plenty of time for her to grow and to mature and go on forward in, the, in her faith. We pray, Lord, that you would help us then to, to be able to distinguish the things that are wrong, the things that are right. And help us to know, Lord, that many times in a believer's life, they may have things that are very, very good, but they may have defects as well. And help us to imitate not the defects, but the good that is in them, the faith. The, the, the true faith. Lord, thank you that you have taught us the truth, that we have heard your voice, that we have heard your way, and that we are saved by the truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. People of God, receive the blessing of God. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.